Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, welcome back into the Nick Bob Podcast. I am taping this. It is Wednesday, December 14th. I got back from Las Vegas. I'm just going to be able to spend some time with the fam here for a few days. Uh, and then I gotta, uh, I'm going to go back out on the road. i got a fun stretch of, of games coming up to kick off Big East Conference play for me and my TV assignments on FS1. Saturday, UConn, arguably the best team in the country at Butler. I'll be on the call for that. Can't wait. And then i got Seton Hall at Xavier uh, early next week. And then I'm back in Omaha on December 22nd. Butler at Creighton. Conference play, Big East play is here, and I am pumped. And I'm kicking it off with three great uh, Big East games here over the next you know seven ish days or so, but on the pod today, I, I got five thoughts on the Creighton Blue Jays. I, I had some time to think after Creighton's fifth straight loss, falling to Arizona State uh, on Monday night in Las Vegas to drop to six and five overall. Yikes, obviously. But I got five thoughts with Creighton hoops. I want to throw at you, and then at the end of the pod, I have one what I believe to be. One fascinating Nebraska football situation to watch and discuss, and there's so many different angles to it. That'll be at the uh, at at the end of the pod. So Husker footballs, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll give you a little Husker football fix. But first, let's start with Creighton basketball because again, tough times right now for uh, for the for the Creighton Blue Jays. Again, five losses in a row, sitting at six and five, not good. I want to start with this thought number one. So. I remember thinking this when I first saw the schedule in whenever it would have been officially released, maybe in August when it officially got released. I remember thinking this when I looked at it, but I figured the obstacle that I was looking at, they'd be good enough to maybe overcome it. So I didn't really ever bring it up, say anything about it. But the thought I had was, boy, I tell you, the construction of this non-conference schedule was a little idiotic from this standpoint. Think about this. Creighton will play one home game, just one, from November 17th to December 22nd. Let me repeat that. Creighton will have played just one home game from November 17th to December 22nd. That's 30 Five days. Like, th- there can't be, there can't be a single other, there can't be a single other power conference team in the country where that's the case. 35 days, one home game in season. November 17th, Creighton played UC Riverside at home. Then they're going to have December 22nd, Butler at home. The only home game during those two games, the only home game during that stretch was Nebraska at the CHI Health Center in Omaha. That's it. Seriously, what 
Was Greg McDermott, Marcus Blossom, the coaching staff, what were these coaches thinking? Now, listen, I understand there's a lot that goes into scheduling and conflicts and dates and and prior contracts for people and all this stuff, but November 17th, December 22nd, you have one home game. And to add to the whole 35 days and, and only one home game, all these, these games, they were brutally tough. There can't be too many teams who've played a tougher stretch than Creighton. In Maui, Texas Tech, Arkansas, Arizona, then at Texas, then BYU and Arizona State. All away from home. 35 days, one home game. And like I said, I get there are a lot of different things to consider and you have to deal with when building a schedule. I get there is, obviously, for, for one, there's building availability, you know, and then obviously the Bud Crawford fight on December 10th in Omaha probably made things challenging. But still, to play one home game from November 17th to December 22nd is just stupid. Any way you slice it, any way you want to explain it to me, any it's just stupid. This schedule always concerned me in that regard. I remember looking at it and I was like, whoa, man. And on top of on top of it all, you had two stretches where you were away from home for long periods of time. Not your typical road trip where you fly in the day before the game, you play in the game, then maybe fly back the, the night of the game or come what no. Maui, they were there for probably seven. They were on the road for seven days. Then in Vegas here, on the road for four to five days. And it just, this team to me, they, this team has seemed tired. This team has lacked, they've battled sickness. This team has needed to find their confidence and rhythm again. And let me tell you, the best place to remedy all of those things is home. It's home. Greg McDermott said this after the Arizona State loss, and I think this is what he was talking about here is kind of what I'm, I'm laying out. I think it's kind of what he's getting at. He said, he's, after the Arizona State loss, he said, quote, the schedule ended up taking a toll on us, more than we thought it would, and you hope that it'll pay off later that some of the lessons that we learned from playing this stretch and as much as we've been away from home that we can grow from. I think this is kind of what he's getting at. But I'm going to tell you, when I saw the non-con schedule, I thought, wow. I thought first things first thing I thought was wow what a great opportunity with this stretch of games Maui Dat Texas all this stuff what a great opportunity if you perform to really put yourself in line for a one or two seed because of all the quality win opportunities out of conference but I also saw a brutally tough stretch of games and an entire month where you pretty much don't have a home game. And sure, nobody could predict Ryan Kalkbrenner being sick and not being fully healthy and and then missing games and then the way the rest of the group has struggled and shot the ball. But this schedule and the way it fell did Creighton no favors. 35 days, one home game. You schedule like that, you better be you better be rocking or you're kind of asking for it. I really, I think if the coaches had to do it over again, they would have rethought how they how the schedule broke out. November twenty second, excuse me, November seventeenth 
to December 22nd, Creighton played one home game. Find me another power conference team during that a 35-day stretch in season where they played one home game. Not making excuses for him, simply pointing it out. The other thought I had was this. So obviously, two of the bigger storylines in of this season for college basketball. If we're looking at like the the head scratching ones, not like the the great stories. You have Purdue doing what they did, UConn obviously, whatever. Like, but two of the bigger storylines for for college basketball this year, about a month or so into it, is hey, what the hell happened in North Carolina, preseason number one team in the country to unranked. And then I think Creighton falls in line with that too. Preseason top 10 team started 6-0 to unranked. Both are head scratchers. And man, I've had a million people when I'm out and about walking around, wherever, ask me, hey, man, Nick, what's the deal with Creighton? What's going on with Creighton? And while there is no simple answer to that question, because it's one of those things like, well, I mean, you if you really want to unpack it, how much time you got, you know? Because, you know, just like a lot of things in life, it's, it's, it's usually not just one thing. It's usually a mixture of things. But if I had to, it, the most simple answer, if I had to really shrink it down and, and simplify it, the most simple answer I've given, or I've given to people centers around Ryan Kalkbrenner. He's been sick, and he hasn't been 100% all year. And now he's out. Non-COVID illness. We all know what's going on. He's going to be out for a while. And I, I talked I talked about this in last my, my last pod. He's Creighton's MVP. He's their most important player. He, he just, he, I go on and on, right? He, he defends the rim, gives you a chance to score efficiently at the rim. Everything Creighton does defensively built around him. I've been over this. But I bring all that up to, to also say that the reality is this. Very few teams can survive their best player not being healthy than missing games. Very few teams can survive their best player not being 100%, not performing at their optimum level, and then missing games. Ryan Kalkman have been sick all year, hasn't been right all year. His block numbers are way down. You could just tell. All year I've watched him, I'm like, oh, man, is it his knee? Is he not fully healthy? What was last year a mirage? Like, what the f- is going on? Like, he just, I mean, St. Thomas's true freshman post is like hitting him with jump hooks. Balu for Arizona gave him 30. Derek Walker just worked him. I'm like, what is going on? But you find out he's been sick. He was sick at the start of the year. He's never been fully healthy. Now he's out. Because he's sick. It's... But very few teams can survive their best player not being healthy, not being 100%, not being themselves, and then missing games. I mean, think about all the great teams in college basketball right now. How would those teams do if their top player was sick all year and was now out? Let's just, let, let's just go through a few teams. Let, let, maybe the top five or ten teams here. Let's just, how would Purdue look with an unhealthy Zach Eady who then was out? Would they be undefeated? I don't think so. UConn without a hundred, a hundred percent Sunogo. How do you think that would go? Indiana without a hundred percent Trace Jackson Davis, then missing some games. Gonzaga without a fully healthy Drew Timmy. Houston 
without a fully healthy Marcus Sasser. Like, how would that go? I could go on and on, but you get the point. To maximize as a top-shelf college basketball team, your stars need to be stars. And most importantly, they need to be 100% and playing. And that's just the truth. So for as perplexing and head-scratching and disappointing as this season has been so far for Creighton, in some ways the answer is just what I laid out to you. Creighton's best and most important player has not been 100% all year. He's been sick for almost the entirety of the nine games that he played in, and now he's missed two. If I said that, and instead of Ryan Kalkbrenner, it was Zach Eady, Purdue would be probably struggling. So sometimes it's never... It's it's you don't want to overcomplicate this thing, and just like maybe this is oversimplifying it. But if if I had to give you the neatest, most clean answer to it, I would I would start there as to what the hell is going on with Creighton and why they're struggling. This whole time, you know, and I'm going to get to this in a little bit. But this whole time before before you punt on Creighton and everybody's wanting to write the obituary of and laugh in the face of Creighton and all this hype and others struggling all this stuff. Let's see what this shit looks like with a fully healthy Ryan Kalkbrenner, fully healthy, fully fully locked in, feeling good, really same defensive impact. Let, let, let's see what it looks like with him out there and rolling. Next thought I had. So it was easy, really easy, to get excited about all the that Creighton was returning from last year's team, right? Ryan Kalkbrenner and Ryan Nemhard, Arthur Kaluma, Trey Alexander, and then adding Baylor Shireman. It was pretty easy to get excited about that. But it was also pretty easy to look past who Creighton lost as well. And naturally, when you lose some games, you kind of, you naturally, inherently think back about last year's team. But what was going on last year's team? Well, that wasn't happening last year. Well, what was going on with last year? Let's take a look at last year. Let me, well, remember last year, like when you struggle, it's human nature to think about last season. I know I have uh, uh, thought about last year's teams a lot over the last few weeks. I've like was thinking about like watching that team at the Garden at the Big East tournament, and I'm like, hey. Then I'm thinking about watching them against San Diego State in the first round of the tournament. I'm thinking about them beating UConn at the end of the year, and I'm just I'm like picturing that team, you know, because you're trying to like figure out, you know, you're trying to diagnose what's going on. In the midst of diagnosing, you kind of go to history, right? The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors. 
by Pella, won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple-pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. So I know I've been thinking a lot about last year's team. And if you think about it, Creighton lost... From last year's team, it's two most consistent performers from an offensive standpoint. It's two best three-point shooters, both in percentage and makes. It's two best defensive rebounders, according to season statistics. Two old seniors who've been through a ton and really appreciated and valued their final crack at a college basketball season. And, of course, I'm talking about Ryan Hawkins and Alex O'Connell. Beyond a healthy Kalkbrenner, those two guys, in some ways, are exactly what Creighton needs right now. Two guys that can make a three. Two guys that consistently can score. Two guys that can rebound defensively. Two guys that were emotionally consistently there. And two guys that were wildly underrated defensively. Alex O'Connell was last year's perimeter lockdown defender. He always guarded the other team's best perimeter player. He did it for 40 games. And Ryan Hawkins, while he wasn't, you know, blocking shots from the from the top of the backboard and super fast and quick and all that stuff, Ryan Hawkins was the two-time MIAA Division II Defensive Player of the Year before coming to Creighton. Two-time Defensive Division II Player of the Year before arriving in Omaha. Plus, he was a talker. He was a communicator on the floor defensively, barking things out, getting people in the right spots. Creighton needs all that. Two best three-point shooters last year, Alex O'Connell, Ryan Hawkins. Two guys that played the most minutes last year, Alex O'Connell, Ryan Hawkins. Two guys that grabbed the most defensive rebounds, Ryan Hawkins, Alex O'Connell. Two guys that, in my opinion, were the most consistent offensive performers, Ryan Hawkins, Alex O'Connell. And you just can't underestimate how their basketball and life experience shaped their passion and drive for last season. Think about it for a second. Alex O'Connell, big-time recruit, goes to Duke out of high school, is is with Zion and R.J. Barrett and those... Big-time recruit. You don't go to Duke if you're not a big-time player. Goes to Duke. It doesn't quite pan out there for him. He has to transfer. He finally arrives at a place where he's going to be able to really play. And in his final year of college basketball, he finally gets to be a full-time starter. Alex O'Connell was hungry to ball out and hungry to win. Ryan Hawkins incredible success, couldn't have had more success at the Division II level, two-time national champ, D2 player of the year, two-time defensive player of the year, transfers 
to the Division One level to the Big East, where he is hungry to prove that he can play at the highest level, the Division One level, at the Big East level, and hungry to win. So both guys, Hawkins and O'Connell, they brought a ton of intangibles along with the tangibles. I was just thinking about that. It was easy and justifiable to get excited about all that Creighton was returning. Again, Kalkbrenner, Nemhard, Kaluma, Trey Alexander, and they're, they're adding Baylor Sharma. It was easy to get excited about that, and justifiably so. I was popping champagne and chugging the Kool-Aid. But it was easy to look past what Creighton lost as well in Ryan Hawkins and Alex O'Connell. Next thought. I've talked about this, but it's worth reiterating quick because there's some. I, I looked at a few numbers. The bench is really struggling for Creighton. I really thought the bench would be a strength for the Blue Jays, and it has not been. Francisco Farabello is struggling to shoot. Sharif Mitchell has scored 12 points in 11 games. He's made one three. Mason Miller shot it well against lower-level teams, but he hasn't shot it great since. And strength-wise, he's still growing there when he gets into these high-level games. Frederick King, he was better in the last game against Arizona State, getting his second start in the absence of, of Kalkbrenner, but he's been struggling a little bit. I mean, he's a freshman big that just started playing organized basketball when he was 14. But overall, think about this. The last seven games against real competition, not St. Thomas, UC Riverside, North Dakota, Holy Cross. I'm talking real competition. So Texas Tech, Arkansas, Arizona, Texas, Nebraska, BYU, and Arizona State. In those seven games, Creighton's bench has been outscored by 66 points. The bench is minus 66 in those seven games. And listen, I get that there are more ways to gauge a bench's production and impact than scoring, but it's still a pretty good way to gauge it as well. Here's the breakout, by the way. Texas Tech, actually even at 4-4 four to four bench points. No bench really was really good. Uh, Arkansas, Razorbacks outscored Creighton's bench 21-3. to Arizona actually was even 11-11. to Texas, Longhorns outscored Creighton's bench 13-0. Creighton's bench scored zero bench points in Austin. Nebraska, Creighton actually outscored Nebraska's bench 16-5, thanks to Francisco Farabello making five threes, and he had 16 points. But then this is where, in Vegas, it was really bad. BYU outscored Creighton's bench 38-8. And then Arizona State outscored Creighton's bench 23-7 for a grand total of of minus 66. Now, if you just look at, you know, just the five-game losing streak here, Creighton and its bench has been outscored by 48 points. That's a lot, especially for an area that you assumed, hey, listen, you're bringing four, two four-year guards in off the bench, and Sharif Mitchell played in the Sweet 16. Francisco Farabello, four-year player, career 40%, three-point shooter, played in the NCAA tournament when he was at TCU. You figured like, oh boy, those dudes are going to come in. Look out. I mean, go look at like the end of the season a couple of years ago when Creighton went to the Sweet 16. Sharif Mitchell was a real impact guy at the end of that year. 
It got to the point where Greg McDermott liked to play Sharif Mitchell and Zagorowski together to have multiple playmakers and guys that could come off ball screens and do stuff. But Farabello, at some point, he's got to start making some shots. I mean, he's getting wide open threes, and he's missing them. He got four wide open threes against Arizona State, missed them all. He's a career 40% three-point shooter. He's ice cold at 30%. Sharif Mitchell, like I just said, he, he's got to... He's got to find his groove and be some sort of a scoring threat. He's doing fine defensively. You expect that. He needs to continue to to really lock in there because that's ultimately where his bread is buttered. But, you know, he, he, listen, he's never going to be Ethan Rogge, but he's got to be able to play, make, and create and score a little bit. Frederick King, got to keep on taking steps in the right direction. Mason Miller, when you're in there, you got to fight your ass off. You get an open three, you, you got to knock it out. And then when Big Stolzberg, you know, when he gets his chances, he's got to get in there and be confident and create. It's hard when you don't, when your when your minutes aren't coming and, and all that. I get it. But man, Creighton's bench outscored by 66 in the last seven games. Been outscored by 48 points in this five-game losing streak. An area that I thought was going to be a strength has been a weakness, and it is gotta it's gotta get better it just absolutely has to get better and then my last thought before I get to uh, some Husker football so like I said on my on my last podcast I'm not selling my Creighton stock no way no way and I've there are a handful of reasons I've told you before I'll tell you again because uh, he's he's a guy that I got so much respect for I fully believe in Greg McDermott fully believe in the guy so that's a good source of my confidence and willingness to hold on to the to my Creighton stock. But the other reason is this. Creighton's ceiling is just higher than a lot of other teams. Creighton's good is better than a lot of teams. There are a lot of teams out there in college basketball whose ceiling just isn't that high. There are certain teams that even when they put it all together, they just can't reach that certain level of play needed to really go toe-to-toe with the big boys. Creighton has it in them. I still feel like, as stupid as it sounds, at losing five in a row and sitting at six and six and five, I still feel like when this team is right and good, they are one of the 10 to 15 best teams in the country. Now, to be fair, I think we've seen that this team is more flawed than the hype indicated. And we've seen that this team's margin for error is way slimmer than the hype indicated. And we've seen that this team's more reliant on Ryan Kalkbrenner than maybe we all even realized. So you got to be able to tell both sides of the story. Listen, the last handful of games, they haven't looked good. I said as much in my last pod. One of the concerning things is... Over the course of these 10 or 11 games, Creighton's only played well in about four or five of them. Five might be generous. But there's a line that I was thinking about. There's a line that I love from Jay Billis when he's discussing bubble teams around, you know, February and March and all that stuff that I think the spirit of it applies to this situation and to top teams as well. Billis's line is always like, okay, if you're on the bubble, like everyone has, you know, everyone has obvious reasons to be left out of the field. 
right? Or you wouldn't be on the bubble. What's your compelling reason for you to be in the field? And I think the spirit of that thought can apply to Creighton. And when you're talking about those upper top teams, right? Sure, every team has flaws and, and, and can struggle. But what does your team look like when it's right? There are a lot of teams out there to sell stock on that have no real compelling case as to why to keep the stock or maybe even buy stock. That's the difference with Creighton. Creighton, in my opinion, still has that compelling reason to keep or buy the stock. Why? Because of their ceiling and what it can look like when they are on and they are right. And listen, this isn't me just like, now just picture what it would look like if they were right. We've seen it. We all saw the Texas Tech and Arkansas game. We didn't make that up. I'm not conjuring up some picture of, well, what if this happened and this happened? What if you're seeing this from Shireman and and you're seeing this from Alexander? No, we saw it. Jay Billis called this team a Final Four caliber team. I text Jay after Maui. I said, Creighton, what do you think? He just texts back, all caps, legit. Jay, Jay, we didn't dream that up. We saw that. Lots of teams can't hit that high of a high in terms of caliber of play. We saw that Arkansas game. That was one of the highest level games I've seen all year. I've watched a lot of games. There aren't too many games. There are only a handful of games that reach the level of play, the level of intensity, the level of grown man, oh, you better be a badass mother to be on that court type of games. Creighton stood on that floor, flexed its muscles on that floor, emerged victorious on that floor. We, we saw what Trey Alexander did in the final eight games of, of last season when he was the guy. We know what Ryan Nemhard can be. We know what Arthur Kaluma can be. How about 24 points and 12 rebounds on the eventual national champs, Kansas Jayhawks in the NCAA tournament? We know what a healthy Ryan Kalkbrenner can look like, one of the five or six most impactful defensive players in the country when he's right. Baylor Shireman was the Summit League player of the year. He was a 50-47-80 guy, 50% from the floor, 47% from three, 80% from the line. His team went 30 and 5 and 18 and 0 in conference play that's all real this team has it in them there's still plenty of time to recapture that so again this five game losing streak has definitely been alarming and I'm not going to sit here and try to lie to you guys they the Arizona State just Punked them. BYU punked them. Nebraska punked them. There's a lot of concerning, alarming things about this five-game losing streak. The Nick Bob Podcast is powered by Runza. You know, there are a lot of ways to, to greet someone. Hey, hi, hello, what's up? Another way is, what's popping? Well, here's the thing. That greeting has taken on a new meaning now because the answer to what's popping is now Runza's new popcorn chicken. That's what's popping. Runza's new popcorn chicken is amazing. Little bite-sized, delicious, all-white meat chicken that make any 
day better immediately. I love them. My wife loves them. My kids cannot get enough. Two-year-old Mac, six-year-old Mava are constantly wanting to get it popping. Great for a snack. Great for a meal. Pair them with the best crinkle fries on planet Earth, and you are set. All I got to say is you need to get out to a Runza location nearest you and get it popping. What's so hard to understand about that? Get it popping with Runza's all-new popcorn chicken. Runza makes it all better. No doubt about it. And there have been elements of what this team has looked like that have, that have con- been concerning. But I still know what this team can look like when it's right. And that picture is good enough to still believe right now and, and not sell that stock, in my opinion. All right, there's five Creighton thoughts for you. Had a lot of time to think over the last 48 hours. All right, let me shift to Husker football. So, you know, it, it's natural It's natural to look at next season for Nebraska football and given the coaching change and, and the beginning of a new era led by Matt Rule and get seduced by the new as the key to next year. I could argue, and I don't think it's that tough of a position to take, that the the most important factor, the most important key to next season isn't anyone new. It's Casey Thompson returning. I could argue the most important component to success for year one Matt Rule at Nebraska. Not talking the long term or, or, of this thing or anything like that, but the most important person for next year's success is Casey Thompson. And, you know, I mean, listen, we can all preach patience and understand that this rebuild is going to take some time, but on some level, year one matters. We can we can do the whole thing where we look at Matt Rule's record and see that he won one or two games in his first years at Baylor or Temple and go, okay, well, that might be what it takes, and that's the formula to bottom out, really, you know, lay the foundation and then get it going. Like, But come on, you and I both know this place is not going to handle a season like that well. Now, I'm not saying they got to go win seven, eight, nine games in year one. I don't think that at all. I mean, I don't care. Any season, though, you, being competitive and winning a little bit matters. Four, five, six games. I don't know how to put a number on it. I think, but I think the, that's reasonable. And the most important person in doing that is Casey Thompson. Now, as I'm taping this, like I said, it's Wednesday, December 14th. There's been no official announcement uh, at all on on that has been made on the future of Casey Thompson, on whether or not he's staying or doing whatever. I, there's been no official announcement. And that is one that I am waiting for and watching closely. But there are so many angles and elements of this situation. couple of things with this Casey Thompson decision and situation both for the coaches for Casey Thompson that I was thinking about as well like I just said bringing back Casey Thompson and Casey Thompson being the quarterback to me is what gives Nebraska the best chance to win football games next year I'm not going to fall victim to assuming that the what's behind door number two the next quarterback will be fine and good I thought that with Tanner Lee nah I thought that with Chubba Purdy nah 
I same thing with Logan Smothers, at least in Mark Whipple's system, when he got chances to start. He may be better in Marcus Satterfield's system. I don't know, but at least what I've seen, yeah, he struggled. I am not going to fall victim to this notion that you plug in any quarterback and they will be okay. Over the course of the last decade or so, I've watched so many shaky quarterbacks get under center at Nebraska that we've all assumed, ah, they'll be fine. Ah, they'll be fine. Joe Daly, Bo Davis, Zach Lee, Cody Green, Andrew Bunch, Ron Kellogg, Luke McCaffrey, Chubba Purdy, Logan Smothers. Like, like, like all those guys to varying degrees really struggled. And let me tell you, Casey Thompson isn't Justin Herbert. He's a pretty damn good quarterback, though. A pretty damn good college quarterback. He's not going to win the Heisman, but you can win games with Casey Thompson as your starting quarterback. I was pretty damn impressed with that guy. I mean, you saw what the offense looked like with him and without him. Now, granted, there's going to be a whole different set of circumstances, but a lot of value in that picture. So again, all I can say is I'm not go- I'm not going to full-fledged buy into I'll take what's behind door number 2 please with this quarterback situation. Mm-mm. Done that too many times. We all think this shit's way easier than it is. In terms of being a good, competent winning quarterback for Nebraska and at the Big 10 level, big boy college football level. Casey Thompson is a known commodity and I think he's a pretty dang good college quarterback. He gives you the best chance in the short term to win games. But here's what is interesting, and it's something that I am always fascinated with when it comes to the dynamic of new coaches taking over in a rebuild of a program. And it's the question of where do you draw the line with what gives you the best chance to win in the short term versus what is maybe best for the long-term development of the program? What if Casey Thompson doesn't quite fit the style of what Marcus Satterfield wants to run and what, what Matt Rule wants the offense to look like at Nebraska? Do you put your system kind of on hold to tailor something to Casey Thompson for one year? The... the this is a, was a conundrum for Mike Riley, I believe. I remember talking about this a ton. If you remember, Tommy Armstrong didn't fit what Mike Riley wanted to run from a, a pure pocket-passing pro-style offense. And what did Mike Riley do? He, he square-peg, round-hold Tommy Armstrong for one year, tried to turn him into Eli Manning, and he threw a bunch of picks, Nebraska struggled, and Nebraska had a losing record. Then in year two, Mike Riley decided to go, okay, I'm going to blend my system, not implement my full arsenal of my playbook in my system to kind of suit Tommy Armstrong. And guess what? He had a better year, Tommy Armstrong, and Nebraska won nine games. But here's the problem. All of a sudden, it was year three before Mike Riley got his quarterback in place and his full system and playbook implemented as to what he wanted this offense to look like. That's not ideal. 
What if I told you right now, hey, Marcus Adelfield and, and, and Matt Rule, they're not going to be able to fully put their system in place until the third year. You'd go, I don't know if I like that. Well, that's what happened with Mike Riley. That's what happened. So with Casey Thompson, does he fully fit with Mar- with what Marcus Satterfield wants to do, wants to run? I don't know. The other element is this. If you're going to take your lumps in year one, are you better off getting your quarterback, your hand-picked guy? Are you better off getting your quarterback experience in that year than having your quarterback sit for a year? Because there is no substitute for real game reps. None. And as long as it doesn't crush your confidence, as long as you're not like throwing some guy to the wolves that's just not ready, but hey, he kind of fits our system, but let's, all right, go get killed. As long as you're not putting him into a horrible situation like that, I always side with real game reps, always. So there may be a case that bringing in your quarterback and getting into your system and getting that quarterback experience is the better move. By the way, all this is assuming that you are bringing in a quarterback that has more than one year to start, which would be ideal in in year one of a rebuild. It's one of the reasons that I liked the whole idea of, of remember for a while it was, okay, are you going to start, are you, are you going to give Adrian Martinez the starting job right away, year one, Scott Frost, what, what are you going to do? Uh, to me, I was like, yes, just like, just get that guy in the center, get him reps, he could be a four-year starter. So, because I was, I thought that was a great picture at the time. If you can bring in a younger quarterback, maybe have a two, three, hell, maybe even a four-year starter. That's great. That's great. So there's that. But again, the elephant in the room is that I think Casey Thompson will likely be the best quarterback in that room if he comes back, and he likely gives you the best chance to win. Again, I like I like Casey Thompson quite a bit. But, but bringing him back and him coming back comes with just it makes it an interesting set of circumstances, right? The reality of Casey Thompson's presence and maybe him announcing he's staying is this. Like, Casey Thompson staying could hinder Matt Rule's ability to maybe go land a transfer portal quarterback because most transfer portal quarterbacks are looking for a starting spot. Most transfer portal quarterbacks aren't looking to sit for a year. Uh, hell, a lot of them aren't even really interested in, in battling or competing for a job. They're in the portal in search of the sure thing. The sure thing being the starting quarterback. And if Casey Thompson is there, maybe that somewhat scares, or a better way to put it is it hinders your ability to get a top-tier quarterback in the portal. Like, if Adrian Martinez would have stayed, would Casey Thompson have come? I don't think so. Probably not. Same school of thought. So I don't know, man. There's a lot to consider. If I'm Matt Rule, I'm likely hard-selling Casey Thompson on stay. Unless he feels like he has a for sure better situation in the portal, whatever that situation may be, Unless he feels like that, then to me, Matt Rule and Marcus Satterfield, those guys, they need to be working hard to retain Casey Thompson. 
He's going to turn 25 years old next season. He's got a ton of experience. He throws a pretty ball, man. He's been through the Big Ten. Lots to like about having that be your starting quarterback. But if you flip it, you know, and you think a bit about it from Casey Thompson's standpoint, it's it's there's a lot to consider. Like, I don't know. I don't I'm not Mel Kuyper Jr. here, but I don't think he's a draftable quarterback. I don't know if I necessarily even think he's a NFL quarterback in general. Maybe he is. I don't know. But you don't really hear much about his draft buzz or anything like that. I, and the other thing is, I'd imagine he could get more and not just more, way more money in NIL here in Lincoln and in the state of Nebraska as the starting quarterback for Nebraska next year than he could in any scenario playing professional football. But he's also 24 years old, and he's going to turn 25 next season, which brings about a few other questions if you're Casey Thompson. you know, Is he ready to be done with college? 25 is old to be in college. I know I was ready to be done, and I was like 23 years old. I was kind of an older guy, a redshirt. And if and if he does want to have a pro career, I, I would also think that his age is something that is maybe working against him if he stays for one more year. For any team that drafts him or signs him to a free agent deal or whatever, they're going to be taking a flyer on a 25, 26-year-old rookie quarterback. That's not that that you got to consider that too. So there's a chance maybe Casey Thompson's at the point where he's like, man, you know what? I took a swing at Texas. I transferred. I took a swing at Nebraska. I've already changed head coaches. I've already changed offensive coordinators. I've already changed offensive systems. I'm 24 years old. I've already graduated. I'm going to 25 next season. Do I want to take another swing at a new head coach and a new offensive coordinator and a new system? Maybe the answer to that question is no. Or maybe the answer to that question is hell yeah. Especially considering I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a nice little NIL check too. Uh, I don't know. And then maybe the bigger question for Casey Thompson that he's thinking about is who the hell am I gonna throw the ball to? You know, Trey Palmer's gone. Who's gonna be his number one target? Travis Vokalex gone. Who's going to be his tight end target? Fedoni going to get healthy? Is he get, uh, I mean, right now there isn't a wide receivers coach, so I'm sure that is kind of on some level maybe stunted the wide receiver recruitment to a certain degree, and I'm sure that's something that Casey Thompson is probably waiting and watching. Who, who's the next? You know, like he's probably like, okay, are they going to bring in the next Trey Palmer? What's going on here? Maybe he's waiting to see what that room looks like which would be perfectly reasonable. So who knows? But I think who the heck am I throwing the ball to has to be a question on Casey Thompson's mind as well. So there's a lot, a lot of angles to this thing. Not to mention, and I hate to do the rumors, I heard that Casey Thompson might have had shoulder surgery too which throws a big wrench into the question of will he be healthy for spring football, which I'd imagine is important for not only Casey Thompson, but also Matt Rule as well. Your very first spring, if you're Matt Rule, head coach, I mean, I, I, 
I would think Rule probably wants a super competitive, intense, productive spring. And if the potential starting quarterback is at full strength for that, obviously that's not ideal. Again, I'm not 100% sure on that surgery thing, but I've heard I've heard some things, and I thought I even heard Steve Sipple mention it too. So just a, that's just another element and angle to this thing as well. Going to be fascinating, fascinating to watch this all play out with Casey Thompson and the quarterback situation for next year. It's arguably the number one thing I'm keeping an eye on right now. No doubt about it. A Heard at Sports Network production.